Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. I imagine that by now many of you already realize that in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint and our first title is, Is There Life After Death? Thinking Aloud Conversations on the Leading Edge of Knowledge and Discovery with Psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is space exploration. With me is Robert Bigelow, the founder of the Bigelow Aerospace Corporation. Robert has also founded the Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies. Welcome, Robert. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure being here again. It's a pleasure to be with you. We, in our previous interview, talked a lot about your childhood experiences and, and as well as the founding of the National Institute for Discovery Science yeah. and how that eventually I guess in your life evolved into the Bigelow Aerospace Corporation. And now we're going to probe more deeply into what it means for humanity to begin exploring outer space. I guess there's two kinds of humanity, those that never do and those that do, right? And we are falling into the uh, first category of those that never do because it's been over a half a century since we have put people on the moon and not just in orbit. And so I, uh, like a lot of people, um, feel that we have missed opportunities. Uh, to me, it wasn't just a competition, which is how it started out mm -hmm. between Russia and the United States. And um, JFK took the gutsy approach, and he was, at the, he was the right president at the right point in time to take up that challenge and say, we're going to do it, and we're going to beat you. We're going to do it. So we have missed that kind of leadership uh, virtually ever since in terms of keep on exploring. We should not, we should have had other, which there are, other good reasons to go back to the moon, not just to win a contest, not just to win a game, very expensive game, but that's not where it should have, should have ended. Your focus has largely been habitats. Yes. In outer space, yes. which is an area that's been largely neglected. It's mostly about getting there and coming back. And uh, very little emphasis has been placed on uh, livable habitats where people can get a lot done. What's the story on commercial habitats? Okay, NASA wants very badly <clears throat> to, to get out of the space station and uh, uh, get into something bigger and better and all, and all of that. But more importantly, to have the costs of that shouldered by the commercial sector. NASA is pretty famous for making a lot of bad deals. And the space station has been extremely costly. The cost of the shuttle was a catastrophe. A billion and a half dollars every time it launched instead of 400 million, which is what they kept broadcasting all the time for years and years. 400 million dollars. It was 1.5 billion every time it went up. So um, the, the commercial sector can spend money much more wisely and frugally than, than NASA ever thought of doing. And that's applicable to throughout all government agencies. We know that. No argument there. 
So the contest, though, to find commercial uh, values uh, to expand orbiting stations around Earth, um, that is the same kind of problem that there is in harvesting whatever from the moon. The moon is extremely valuable from a standpoint of what your life has been in, psychology. Mm. So let's forget helium-3 and anything else for a moment and just talk about the psychology of things. We only have one moon, and we see it in the daytime, we see it at nighttime. Opportunities like like this of, of actually taking control and charge of the moon only happen maybe once a millennia. They're very, very rare. And people worry about this, the 1967 Space Treaty as to that being a prohibition <clears throat> against harvesting the moon. Well, they ought to be more worried about whether or not we can compete against China, and especially if they combine themselves with Russia. But China is perfectly capable, if they set their mind to it, of going after the moon and beating the United States if they want to. Everybody knows the financial difficulty that the United States now finds itself in. It's in a huge financial mess. We owe almost $32 trillion dollars. Uh, compared to $17 trillion three years ago. We were once the largest creditor nation. Now we're the largest debtor. We have less capability um, than we had before of being able to do large, great things. And part of any large vision of Go West, young man, has to do with financial capabilities. And the United States has spent itself into significant weakness in being able to do that. And obviously that's applicable to conducting effective, efficient wars in another kind of category. So having a strong financial foundation is a very, very important as a nation. And psychologically, that may be the most valuable thing that there is about the moon, is that whoever controls it Now, I'm going to the extreme and talking about not partnering, not uh, cohabitating or anything like that. <clears throat> But I'm talking about what if a country like China managed to engineer deliberately a program of control? I can even describe how it will happen. But let's, let's talk about, first of all, what are the effects of that? <clears throat> what are the effects of every man, woman, and child on the planet going outside and looking at that body, the moon, and realizing it's China that owns it, that controls it. And one way or another, they control it. The United States would have to probably have an enormous suffrage of that image. We would rank number two, no question about that, regardless of other kinds of ways of calculating how we might rank number two, number three in the world unless we were to try and do the same thing with Mars. But if you were going to be, if you were a betting man, and you did live in Las Vegas for a while. <laughs> 17 um, years. Would you bet against China being able to get to Mars before we did in a very elaborate kind of way? I would say that's not a bet I would want to cover. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and the, so the psychological impact on the human race would be absolutely huge. Yeah. It'd be where China's indisputably number one now, 
And the United States is indisputably number two or less. In, in what sense? In, you mean in terms of uh, advances in space exploration? Before you even before you even get there, uh, in the in the sense of psychological impact on the human race. Okay. They certainly have the largest population. They have the second largest economy. So you would say, well, what is what is it more tangible? It's it's one of something. Okay, so China and India are neck and neck. Population-wise, yeah. right? Yeah, I, actually, but, I think India is number one now. Yeah, I think by about twenty million people. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really tight. <clears throat> but China's indisputably financially in a, in a terrific position. Um, American political management has been foolish for a long time, but they pander to the voter. They always have pandered to the voter. So if you can buy the votes, why not buy it with other people's money? Just go ahead and buy it. But the Chinese have a bifurcated economy. Yes, they have control through communism. Mm -hmm. They have economics through capitalism. Yes. That's a really powerful combination. Very, very powerful. Mm -hmm. You can dictate anything you want to your media. Their space program is the Red Army space program. Mm -hmm. Okay? It's, it's not like a civil pro program like ours. Mm -hmm. Ditto for Russia. <clears throat> so those programs do what the what the governments want them to do. They're not, they're not in a commercial or, or a private citizen kind of situation. They're military. NASA is a civilian organization. Correct. Correct. So from a psychological standpoint, that is huge. That's something you can't buy. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not a material. It's, it's something immaterial. It's something that goes to the belief system of a people. Mm -hmm. For better or worse, right or wrong, it's the belief system of people that leaders usually try to control one way or another. Where there's a political philosophy, a religious philosophy, it doesn't matter. The point is exactly the same. Mm -hmm. You're trying to control the minds of people that, that dictates their behavior. I, that's clear. Uh, I mean, every every country feels they they want to have a unified population, not a population that's going to rebel against that's the right. establishment. That's right. People look at the 67 Space Treaty and say, oh, that can't happen. Well, that's because they haven't read it. Well, what's the premise? Uh, I, I'm assuming the premise is that the moon, is, like Antarctica, is it belongs to international organizations. Yes and no. So there are about 170 signatories to the to the 67 treaty. Thank goodness we didn't sign the 72 lunar treaty. We didn't sign that, but we did. We did sign the 67. Um. The treaty provides the responsibility for every signatory, for every sovereign country to sign that treaty. Each sovereign country has the obligation and the responsibility to go ahead and produce and promote and profit from the lunar activities for the common good. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you're prevented from going in there and extracting something and then selling it for the common good. Mm -hmm. Aren't pharmaceutical, isn't the pharmaceutical industry for the common good? In theory. Yeah, in theory. Yeah. All right. So <clears throat> the, the, the premises is exactly the same. Mm -hmm. It's up to each sovereign country to engineer 
the ways for them to have bases and to make uh, uh, reasons to justify that economically. And the moon's a big place. It's a quarter the size of the earth. There, there should be plenty of room for multiple ventures. There is and there isn't. There is beachfront property. Okay. So, uh, there are certain areas that are not beachfront property. So, the, the uh, onus is on every signatory to engineer those ways for the common good. And you can interpret that. As a signatory, you are a sovereign country, and you can interpret what you are doing. Capitalism is for the sovereign good. If it weren't for capitalism, America wouldn't be able to give away all the money it's been giving away, right? To a point. And then, it'll, then it can't give it away anymore. It won't have it. And, and we may be getting close to that <laughs> we point. We may be getting close. Yeah. All right. The onus is on every, every signatory. And let's talk about bases for a minute. It's clear in the treaty that you can have a base. It's not clear as to the size of that base. It could be huge. Mm -hmm. It'd probably be something that you need to establish borders, yeah. which is not a good word in some places today, but I think it's a really good common sense word. Mm -hmm. But you would have to establish borders on a base, define them. You are obligated to provide aid and assistance to somebody that's in trouble on your base. But you also can control your base. You don't have to let in anybody at all yeah. unless it's, you're, you're doing something for a humanitarian reason. Mm -hmm. uh, it also doesn't say how many bases you can have. So it doesn't describe their size. Are they, are they Rhode Island or are they Texas mm -hmm. or Alaska? Mm -hmm. you know, um, and how many are you going to have? There is an interesting article, though. Article number 16 is two sentences long. So if I were China, I would say, I'm going to invoke Article 16 when I'm ready. Okay? And uh, what I will do is establish a base or bases, and then I will enter into a program of a variety of kinds of scientific research, but I'm also going to do on-site surveying and mapping. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to put down cadastrals and monuments and establish my corners permanently. For the benefit of me and our viewers, what is a cadastral? It's a metal uh, tube mm -hmm. that's pounded into the ground. Mm -hmm. It has a large, flat surface on the top like a nail. Yes. It looks like a giant nail, mm -hmm. a huge nail. And you, you pound them into the ground, and those are – that's usually maybe the corners of townships. I see. You have section, section townships and ranges mm -hmm. here on the earth, you know. You'd, monuments tend to be dis more easily destructible, mm -hmm. uh, depending on, the, on, obviously, the construction of the monument. But uh, not a pile of rocks can be relocated pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, so the point is, you're establishing patent territory. Mm -hmm. And as a sovereign country, um, you, you, might, you are entitled to extract... But as a sovereign country, you can define the perimeters of your bases. Mm -hmm. And we, we said it, you don't, it's not limited to what size is your base. It's mute on that. And how many are you going to have? And Shackleton's Crater is one of the beachfront property areas. Mm -hmm. The backside of the moon is a big problem because of all the craters that, that uh, the backside of the moon has. The front side has had Earth to help protect it. Mm -hmm. The backside has not. Um, so, so Article 16 is interesting because 
because if I if I got all my resources together on the moon, I was able to traffic quickly from the Earth to uh, lunar uh, depots that are going to be able to traffic shuttles to the surface, to the lunar depot, then back to Earth again. Mm -hmm. So you get that transportation cycle going. And then... The lunar depot, what is that? Well, it's it's an orbiting station. Uh And it could be be for a lot of reasons. It could be a a warehouse. Mm -hmm. It could be a hospital. Would orbit the moon? Yes, uh orbiting the moon. Uh More than one. Yes. Like you would have around Earth, but more than one. Mm It could be a way station for people in order to sleep over, rest, prepare to go down to the surface or vice versa. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, um, the moon only has, what, one-sixth gravity. So it might be a place where you have uh, a rotating system where you can influence more gravity so that when they get to Earth, depending on how long they've been in that one-sixth environment, um, remember where the people would weekly crawl out of the shuttle after being in the shuttle, and they would they would be very weak and have to be assisted in some cases mm-hmm. to get out of the shuttle. It'd be, it could be worse than that. Mm-hmm. If you're on the moon for six months yeah. in one six G, um, there probably would be centrifuges or something to give you some artificial boost every day that mm-hmm. you'd have to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but <clears throat> so the the point really is that Article sixteen uh, allows you to back out in twelve months. You send a letter of withdrawal. Mm-hmm. to the United Nations Committee yeah. and say you no longer want to be a member yeah. because you have other things in mind that you're not going to mm-hmm. talk about. Yeah. And you're going to be actually uh, confiscating everything. Yeah. Okay, So now you have zero obligations. The handcuffs are gone yeah. from the 67 Treaty and because you've already established your perimeters, your bases, and everything. Mm-hmm. Now you do what you, whatever you want to do and survey the hell out of anything mm-hmm. an old-fashioned way and those kinds of patents are defendable in any court. Practically any court in the world would would defend those. A patent? A, a land patent. I see. A land patent. A, a land patent being a claim? Well, like the Spanish land grants yes. in the United States. You know, they went back to yeah. 1800s or 17, you know, earlier. And uh, depending on how they were documented and so forth, they had they could be very effective. So... Article 16 is the way out mm-hmm. to then just proliferate everywhere and stick your flags every place yeah. if you want to do that. You can still get away with a tremendous confiscation of territory just by establishing bases mm-hmm. and numerous bases. There's no limit to the size. There's no limit to the number. But you would need to somehow stake it out. Yes. You would want to have parameters to establish, this is my turf of my territory. Do not enter. It's not enough to say sit in Washington D.C. and say here's the map uh, and this is what w- we are claiming for ourselves. You can't trust Washington D.C. Washington D.C. has been a joke for quite some time. They're dishonest. They're not trustworthy. You would never do uh, a business deal, and in some ways, with maybe a handshake, because of the nature, the efficacy of the honesty and character of the individual, mm-hmm. like yourself. You'd never do that with a with a typical politician ever. Ever would never do that. They hold allegiance to the voter, not to you, not to the citizen. Only if you're going to vote for them, then you're the friend for a time being, right? So I I have no respect 
Well, you've had a lot of dealings with politicians. For most politicians and a high, high, vast majority, mm -hmm. I do not have respect for them because you have to earn it. Yeah. It's not something to be given away. Mm -hmm. You can't. You have to earn it. Yeah. You know, the moon is extremely important. Mm -hmm. uh, whoever does e extract the helium-3 gas, uh, which is maybe several meters deep, uh, will have a very interesting fuel. Um, we get it on Earth by the decomposition of, of uh, nuclear warheads, the, the, the radiation on, mm -hmm. on that uh, uh, off-gassing or whatever they call it on nuclear warheads, but it's very, very rare. But there are other heavy metal resources uh, there that, that can be extracted. And um, it is also the jumping-off place to the rest of the solar system. So the moon is terribly valuable. It sounds like what you're saying is that the helium-3 alone, forget the other heavy metals, would be worth far more than, than the whole United States debt. So can you imagine if 40 tons of this gas can supply all the energy needs for a year of the United States? That value is huge. But what if, what if you have the only operating fission reactors did you man i mean part of the function of not having any we currently don't is that you don't have enough feedstock to play with because mm -hmm. that's a problem chicken or egg kind of thing yeah. so but if you had plenty to play with then the odds are you're going to find some solutions and you could have a, the monopoly mm -hmm. on that again china could be a powerhouse yeah. with that kind of energy so it's people have been talking about helium three, uh, you know, ad nauseum. But if it actually happens, then everybody's going to be. I told you so. You know, that's how that's how it works. Seems like there's enough helium three to to share amongst multiple nations if they wish to divide up the resources. What what's the the re, the potential of that of that not happening because someone has engineered a way to become very efficient in ownership, you know, of, of the predominant amount. There have been some wild estimates that there's somewhere between a million and 20 million tons. Mm -hmm. A million to 20 million tons. So basically, they don't know. I mean, it's so not distributed evenly throughout the moon. It's probably in drifts. It's an isotope of helium yes. that comes from, from uh, sunlight. Mm -hmm that's drifted over billions of years, uh, accumulated. So I, I imagine like a lot of things, it's in different quantities of, mm -hmm. of uh, um, and at different depths, you know. So um, again, that'd be you know, the surveying would probably be one thing you're doing is mapping out territory. The other is to find sites of where you have deposits mm -hmm. that are concentrated deposits. I had a uh, person who was at one time uh, a frequent guest on this program who advocated, not on this program, but advocated elsewhere, and it caused a, a rift between us. He said the United States should abrogate the space treaty and declare the moon is ours. He said this would immediately trigger a war with China, and we should take the opportunity now while we can to destroy China so that we can own outer space. I thought it was a crazy idea. The, the problem is there are way too many things wrong with that. Mm -hmm. And um, one is that 
we're not prepared in the least. <laughs> okay. Um, the second is that uh, you want to try to engineer ways of making good, sensible partnerships. So what I would do is put our industry against their 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 leaders, not our leaders. They they the deck is stacked against us, right? We don't have the competency in our leadership to do anything like that. In our corporate world, we do. We do have. Um, so if our corporate world would go head to head in legitimate ways of negotiating with the Chinese, um, but that has to be backed up <clears throat> with behind the scenes. What are you capable of doing? Are you capable of actually getting there before them? And do they know that? Are they worried about that enough to where they're going to come to the table and actually do a fair partnership? So do you, you have work to do at home mm -hmm. to make some things, to engineer all of the get ready things, you know. I understand they are planning to land a person on the moon in, in a year or two. Hooray. <laughs> a person or two. <clears throat> now, you didn't say 20 or 40. No. <laughs> okay. One or two. Um, yeah, hooray. Big deal. But <clears throat> there, there isn't a plan I've heard of that is of the type I'm, I'm suggesting to actually create um, bases on the moon. And I would, I would energize our Space Force mm -hmm. to have our military involved. NASA can't do it. The NASA that got us to the moon is not that before, is not the same NASA today in any way, shape, or form. I'm just being frank, okay? It's a more of a jobs works program. I have friends there. I have, there are some good people there, some really good people there, but they're, mark, they're marking their clock and, and looking for retirement, maybe joining an aerospace company. Um, that's what a lot of NASA folks do is serve out a certain amount of time, then go join the aerospace company and, and then retire after that. Mm -hmm. um, but there is um, corruption, okay? And NASA is no different than probably every, every agency, United States government agency. Um, there are enormous inefficiencies in the way they spend money. And Eisenhower established NASA deliberately not to be a military organization. He was worried about the industrial military-industrial complex, right? Yeah. So he scattered all these NASA centers, 10 NASA centers everywhere. Everybody's got to have a piece of that pie. So it's bleeding every, every place mm -hmm. on goofball things that, that please somebody in this state or in that state and this state and that state. So it has an impossibility of really doing an intelligent program with not enough money in order to go forward on something that's really important for the future, not just to get you reelected now and keep you elected. Okay? So leadership has been horrible in that agency. We've had very, very few good leaders, leaders in that. I think Golden was, was a good leader. Um, yeah, I think he was good. I, I I don't want to get into naming names, but we've had we've had a few, mm -hmm. very very few though. Well, I know you must be very disappointed uh, in government right now, not just NASA, uh, because as as a result of uh, circumstances involving the government, the Bigelow Aerospace Corporation ha has in effect been shut down. 
that brings it home, but I care about my country. The real question hasn't anything to do with Bigelow Aerospace. Whether it stays closed uh, or not, um, I'll adapt one way or another, mm-hmm. and maybe it's a, a, a blessing in disguise for me, yeah. you know? Um, so I can be philosophical. I'd like to think that it will be a blessing in disguise. But in, in any case, your, your vision was centered around the idea that the capitalist system could, would be appropriate for the exploration and the exploitation of the resources on the moon and elsewhere in outer space. That isn't going to get voters. That never resonates with a government body that is hell-bent on getting as many voters any way they can. The space thing takes a back seat to all of that. It's, it's usually been kind of an a—it's not something that's politicized. It's, it's something that is, has tried to be a little bit above politics, you know. Space Force, the only way we could really compete against China is to empower Space Force mm-hmm. and make it authorize it to have astronauts and really give it a decent, good budget that and mainly, mostly important is it doesn't have a good mission. Go do it. Put your suits on. Go to the moon. Go to Lagrange points. Go do something. Go own a habitat someplace. Right? Get started. Because the Chinese already are. Well, we have the International Space Station. It's mostly American and Russian, I gather. And, and as I understand it from our conversation, the key to being able to conduct large-scale experiments, manufacturing or mining or any kind of industrial operation <clears throat> that requires many people will be expandable habitats. That's the current opinion of ourselves and of NASA people. Um, they use us as the gold standard in terms of trying to achieve uh, the, the, the least leak rate. We are less than the aluminum structures in leak rate. Mm-hmm. Okay, All things leak a little bit. In the defense against uh, uh, space debris, mm-hmm. we are better than, than the aluminum structures by a long shot. That's interesting because most people imagine that an inflatable structure could be easily punctured. So inflatable structures aren't balloons. We have deliberately destroyed a lot of scale, full scale, and small scale, scale structures. So they expunge gas. They don't go bang. But they also have shields. So you have a restraint layer that's like the steel belts of your tire, mm-hmm. but it's, they're not steel. Yeah. You have an air barrier that controls all the gas. And then you have a a series of shields. Mm -hmm. And the larger the structure, the thicker the shields, the more shields that you have. Mm -hmm. And that means the larger the space debris is that you can defend against. Mm -hmm. Um, And you have micrometeorites that hit, you know, lots, lots of times. The size of a grain of sand. Yeah, very small particles. Mm-hmm. Space debris is a potentially very ca- dangerous, chaotic kind of thing. In, in near-Earth orbit, particularly. Yeah, yeah. Especially when you have swarms of tens of thousands of, of satellites and so on. Yeah. So it's, it's a thing to cope with, for sure. Um, 
But so <clears throat> expandable systems have benefits um, that aluminum structures or metallic structures can't possibly have. Mm-hmm. And the biggest one of all is um, a volume mm-hmm. because it goes up by the cube. And, you know, according to news reports, have, had it not been for COVID, and I don't know what other obstacles you've encountered, <clears throat> at this point in time, we're recording this in June of 2023, you would be the owner of a hotel in orbit. Well, we would be, We our, our, our plant would be very active. Yeah. I would have probably... Pursued a million dollars that NASA still owes us. Mm-hmm. You know, after we did all the work, they still owe us a million dollars. I would have pursued that. But more importantly, I would have pursued um, pounding on the door, insisting that we re-enter the competitions that we were blocked from when we were the ones that discovered what money NASA really had mm-hmm. for expandable hab- for any habitats, yeah. right? Yeah. And they didn't know. Yeah. And I tell them, and then they verify it. And then they said, well, you you already backed out, yeah. and you, we're, you're not allowed back in. So I would have probably forced that to the courts. You would have taken that. I would have taken it to the courts, and I would have won. But COVID interfered. Is that what you're saying? It did. It did. You know, the governor, who's no longer our governor yeah. in Nevada, uh, shut us down as a non-essential business. So we did. And um, so there was no point in, in going through all those gymnastics, mm-hmm. you know, um, but I would have, I would have definitely tied NASA up in a, in a, in a very strong lawsuit, mm-hmm. um, and we would have won, because the number they had, they said in black and white, that's all the money there is, mm-hmm. and we needed double that amount of money, mm-hmm. and then the OMB said, oh, that's just a placeholder, that 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 uh, money was just a placeholder. We didn't know how much it was going to be, mm-hmm. and then later they that they awarded. To other companies that was that were going to piecemeal it, mm-hmm. well, we could have piecemealed it too. We could have said, "Okay, this will take care of fifty percent," mm-hmm. you know, and uh, worry about the other the other monies later in further appropriations. But um, yeah, I I'm frustrated by the mess the country is in because I love my country, and it's hard to say to hell with it. You know, just because you're you're angry and upset, and there's so much that is wrong, mm-hmm. and People are are um, so so narrow and bad in their thinking. Just they're just after votes, you know. So it's it's a pathetic thing. And and a lot of people that say, "Well, I love my two, you know, I've got my hand out as to what you can do for me." Mm-hmm. Okay, forget what John Kennedy said. Yeah. You know, don't don't ask what your country can do for you. Mm-hmm. Ask what you can do for your country. Mm-hmm. Well, that to people. That's baloney into into a lot of people's minds. Yeah. It's not in my mind. Mm-hmm. It's not in my mind in the least. And I think he was a great leader. I think he was a terrific leader. And that philosophy is says, yeah, give something back to your to your country, damn it. Stop always taking, taking, taking. And that's that that's the philosophy that I, I see that permeates this country. You don't try to get contaminated by that stuff, you know? It's hard for me to imagine what it must have been like for you investing, I don't know how many millions of dollars and 20 years of your life building an aerospace business only to run into these obstacles that you've just described. Well, I'm not a super rich guy. Mm-hmm. I spent $375 million out of pocket 
after income taxes on my aerospace company. And we spent that money very efficiently because we accomplished a lot. You know, we've, we uh, still have uh, three structures in space in orbit that nobody else does. And we launched two of them in 06 and 07. And one had 11 or 12 cameras and the other one had like 22 cameras total inside and out. Uh, on the second one called Genesis 2, we did something really fun that nobody's ever done since. We took, um, on our solar, we had two solar array panels, and we had a projector on one and a camera on another. And we could upload uh, a video, a, a picture, a photograph, onto the hull of our spacecraft. We could, we could broadcast that and, and project it onto the hull of our spacecraft. So we projected every, every employee in the company's picture for God and everybody to see the entire universe mm -hmm. for X amount of time mm -hmm. on the hull of our spacecraft, downloaded it. In fact, we have some large banners mm -hmm. in our building that, that have people's faces on those. On those, uh, on the, that, that was a fun. That was. We also had a fly your stuff program mm -hmm. for two hundred ninety five dollars. You could fly something the size of a golf ball yeah. or a business card or a photograph. Mm -hmm. And we would take pictures of it, which we took pictures of every single one mm -hmm. and download them so people had the proof there. So they're all floating around, right? Mm -hmm. And we had circulating fans inside. We had no actual air conditioning. We just circulated fans. Um, and the rotation of the spacecraft kept an ambient temperature between, oh, Fahrenheit, like 50 to maybe 75 degrees. Mm -hmm. And uh, and our shields mm -hmm. to boot. And so we did that, and we had human ashes, which maybe we weren't supposed to do. I don't know. We had pet ashes, you know, and we had lots of business cards and, and like that. Mm -hmm. And that was a fun program, yeah. you know, to just to, to network with people on, and uh, because those things meant something to them, yeah. and we we flew them. Mm -hmm. Well, you had a vision for what the movement of the humanity into outer space could be like, how it could work both financially and technologically. We were having fun, too. You know, we were, we were inventing things all the time. Like I said before, I have like 29 patents, mm -hmm. and uh, we have a lot of trade secrets, which is in having to do with methodologies of uh, processes and, and that kind of thing. Um, but we were having fun, and things were happening if not every day, every week, mm -hmm. we were having something going on. It could be a, a test. It could be uh, something larger than that. It could be a new pro a program that maybe we're going after, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and that's part of the program when a problem is when NASA <clears throat> basically is the fountainhead of all the programs. Unless you have a lot of cash yeah. and you just create your own programs. Mm -hmm. You know, like Elon is doing, you know, with his, his super – giant rocket, you know, and that's all his own money. Yeah. Uh, it's not NASA money at all. And um, so he's very important in America's space future. Mm -hmm. He's super important. At least from what I read in the news, the, the big emphasis, and, and I've certainly heard it from Elon, is going to Mars. And I gather that you think that uh, that's premature. For 20 years, rockets... We're not our business and never will be. Keeping you alive was our business. Mm -hmm. And having you in enclosures 
that made you safe was our business. Um, nobody had to tell us that's what we needed to do. Not NASA. Nobody needed to tell us that was our responsibility. We needed to do that. And we needed to be the best at doing that. And we developed the best enclosures, metallic, um, uh, fabric, or whatever. It doesn't matter. The safest enclosures that exist today, right now. Getting to the moon is one thing. And we haven't done it for over half a century, right? right? And I think you said earlier we're going to put one or two people there. I didn't hear 100 or 200. <laughs> one or two. Yeah, I guess. Okay. Yeah. So um, there's an order of magnitude, maybe it's worse than that, on the difficulties in going to Mars, maybe two orders of magnitude. It's just, it's, re it's really huge. Yeah. <clears throat> so there are, the, uh, the entire enclosure <clears throat> is super, super important. Mm -hmm. And the multiplicity of resources is super, super important. And so you don't send four people to Mars or six people to Mars. Having the most multiplicity of humans is part of the menu. Mm -hmm. A multiplicity and back of spare parts, food, you name it. Mm -hmm. Having a, a good hospital is important. You know, you need a, a recovery, you need a surgical area, a recovery area, and a contamination ward, an isolation ward, mm -hmm. so you can you can so the whole ship doesn't catch whatever. Our, we were we build we were building a standalone space station. Okay, now ours was small, only three hundred and thirty cubic meters, but it wasn't small if you stuck it on the ISS. Mm -hmm. The largest habitat on the ISS is roughly a hundred between one hundred and one hundred and ten cubic meters, and the entire ISS, as I said, you know cubic meters for habitable volume is only about 950. Mm -hmm. So three of ours equal the entire habitable volume of the ISS. We were experimenting with um, full-scale mock-ups, and we were also looking at the engineering, or we wouldn't have done the mock-up, as to the plausibility of something that was 2,200 cubic meters in one volume. Mm -hmm. In one volume. It's in our shop today. Mm -hmm. And we did it years ago. We did the calculus on it, made sure that, mm -hmm. that we would have a, a satisfactory factor of strength and everything. And uh, so, um, but it was 2,200 cubic meters compared to 950 of the ISS. But somewhere between 330 and 2,200, we can safely grow a much larger vessel. And volume really, really matters. And then you can connect these modules as well. That's the point. That's the point. You need all kinds of purposes for the modules. You can't have a, you can't have just a couple small few. You know, maybe you wind up with a thousand cubic meters, but you wind up with ten one hundred cubic meter modules. No, that's silly. Uh, that's that's handcuffing yourself. You need modules for the reasons I just stated. Yeah. You need them for entertainment. Mm -hmm. That's really important. Mm -hmm. Keep people from going crazy and to really enjoy the friggin' trip. Yeah. Right? So, but you need them for warehousing, everything. Uh, all kinds of spare parts, all kinds of supplies. You need a good c command and control center. And all of these are potentially safe havens. So you need, you need safe havens where you can take a, 
a solar flare event anyway. Mm. So you get a big dosage of, of uh, solar radiation. Yeah, I mean, that's a big issue. I understand a high percentage of NASA's budget goes to solar weather monitoring. What it's a big issue, but it's not the biggest radiation issue by any means. Mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, you have these solar flares, and so you need to be in isolation until they pass. Mm-hmm. And so you need to have these these facilities, but you may want to have some major ones. Mm-hmm. Depends on the amount of population that you have on board. And then again, having multiplicity of human resources is really important. Mm -hmm. So you don't have a McMurdo problem where the only doctor is the one that that gets sick that has to be operated on, right? So you don't want that. Um, So entertainment, all this is really important. And and enough for psychology reasons, psychological benefit is having distance in between people mm-hmm. in space. Mm-hmm. You want decent sleeping quarters, yeah. you know, that are that are that have a lot of room and so on. So you want large structures and you want a multiplicity of them. And then you worry about, okay, what's the propulsion going to be to navigate that to the destination? Mm-hmm. You have a two-year cycle of, of the return or, you know, when both bodies are in the right positions to, to go back to Earth in the shortest time, mm-hmm. and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Two years from Mars is that what? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> but mainly, it's it's you don't have any experience yet, right? Mm-hmm. So we're blessed with five Lagrange points. Ah, that's what I want to get to. Five Lagrange points. So in the Moon Earth solar whole system, we have one on the opposite side of the Moon, one between the Moon and Earth, one. Um, Perpendicular, one uh, opposite the left and right side of Earth mm-hmm. out, and one between the Sun and the Earth. And they're all roughly about a million miles or so from Earth. Mm-hmm. And that's where you can maintain the status quo without any energy for a long, long time. Yeah. I mean, back in the 1970s and 80s, I was reading about from a fellow, as I recall, named O'Neill. That would be the place to locate orbiting space stations at yeah. those points. Yeah. So it takes little or no energy to stay there, and that's good if you're trying to practice, mm-hmm. right? It's also good from a laboratory standpoint mm-hmm. because if you are having to destroy something, that's a place to destroy it or in deep space further out, yeah. you know, much further out. Or to do the kind of research and manufacturing that requires zero gravity. Yeah, and maybe nobody on board mm-hmm. because of the nature of what's going on on board. Mm-hmm that station. It could be a hostile environment inside that station Mm -hmm. that you would never want to have anybody near or inside. Mm -hmm. So so before I would engineer a a program to Mars, um, it's it's not just what's all the enclosures look like, what does your propulsion look like and all that, and how can you get a quantity of people, not four or six, to to go to Mars. And oh, by the way, what are all the facilities waiting for you when you do get there, you know, and backup facilities because you just missed your your touchdown location, you know, by 80 kilometers or 180. So where's your backups? But where's all your practice? What have you been doing? Are you practicing in your backyard? You know, the moon is in our backyard, right? 238,000 miles away. So, so Lagrange points are perfect to send somebody out there a million miles from Mama, and um, they're there for 
a year or two years. It's got to be serious. Not four months or six months or anything. It's got to be serious. A year or two years out, and that starts to give you a taste, gives, educates you on what you're starting to face just going to Mars, much less anywhere else. That's an obvious next step if we're really serious about going. It's hugely obvious. Yeah. And as well as background galactic radiation really doesn't want to be commingled with aluminum. Mm -hmm. It reacts violently to that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so um, it'll kill you all your brain cells so that by the time you get back, if you don't have enough shield on your systems, and our shields help a lot, and there's water is the base shield there actually is, the best kind of shield there is. The hydrogen atom is, is very valuable. I seem to recall somewhere along the line hearing maybe from you or one of your colleagues that using human excrement, which is going to occur, uh, and storing it in, in the shields made a lot of sense. Yeah, it's true because, you know, it, uh, <clears throat> so you triple, quadruple bag it. Mm -hmm. And so you have all these, these excrement tiles. <clears throat> You know, on the hull, mm -hmm. and uh, and that's not one that you need for Earth orbit. It's one you need when you're leaving Mama and you're going out, mm -hmm. and you're trying to decide. Well, how can we make use of that product yeah. to our benefit? Well, it turns out it does have a benefit. Mm -hmm. It does help. But when you're in close Earth orbit, like the International Space Station is now, uh, what is it, the Earth's magnetic field shields from galactic radiation? Yeah. Basically, you have none, no shielding mm -hmm. on the surface of the moon or no shielding on the surface of Mars. Yeah. Uh, Mars has 1% the atmosphere of Earth. But the moon has none. Yeah. So if you're out walking around in a spacesuit, you're going to be toast. Your brain cells are going to be gone if you spend too much time doing that. Yeah. Day after day, week after month, so on, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. The solution for both bodies is how much of an underground facility did you make mm -hmm. or facilities? So did you go into the lava tubes of the moon? Did you find some level lava tubes that you go down, but it's level and they open up? Mm -hmm. They're huge. So um, nobody knows that how large some of these cavities are. They could be, there's been speculations. You know, the, how long would it take an airplane to fly from one wall to the next wall? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. There's been some interesting speculations on that mm -hmm. because it rings like a bell, hollow. My goodness. So uh, you'd have to excavate those on Mars, but you got to do what you got to do. Mm -hmm. So it's not just always putting regolith on, over the top of surface stations. We have a, a way of... Uh, Handling that that that's that doesn't require any mechanical uh, lifters or loaders or anything that go wrong, because that was really your specialty is life support. It doesn't stop mm -hmm. just in, you know just because you're in transit mm -hmm. and it continues after you landed, yeah. right? So all that's really important, mm -hmm. but that radiation would make it to where uh, astronauts could, could be coming back to Earth and they can't feed themselves. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, so the Lagrange points are terribly valuable, mm -hmm. and that's what we need to acclimate ourselves to. And again, going back to Space Force, to me, <clears throat> that is our potential equalizer mm -hmm. with China, not NASA. Mm -hmm. 
It is a political body. It is a shell of what it used to be. It does not have the right stuff at all like it used to have, you know, 50, 60 years ago. It does not have that at all. It's compromised every time it turns around by politicians, all of the time. So Space Force is what we would have to look to. I do recall an earlier conversation in which you suggested that any private business that wants to work into outer space these days has to contract with NASA. Basically, yeah, they're the source of the money. Mm -hmm. The uh, private sector's development of commercialization um, is not there at all to close the business case without NASA. In fact, um, we close the business case pretty well. Uh, our satisfaction, if we had 50% of our overhead covered by NASA, 50%, we could cover the other 50 and still have margin for error and that kind of thing that was satisfactory. You know, So we still had different uh, business programs that worked. And I gave three, you know, one from OMB and two from NASA, tutorials at our plant on those business cases. Well, the OSAP program that uh, was done under the auspices of your aerospace company was, in effect, a military contract that you had to ultimately research the paranormal. Yeah. And, and I gather, considering yeah. that uh, Lekatsky, the military project manager you worked with, co-authored a book about it now and that book went through all sorts of approval processes from the government in order to be released. It Huge. Suggests that you had a good experience in, in that instance. He had a hard time getting that, that published. Yeah. He had to jump through a lot of hoops to make it happen. There were people in his world that were worried to the point, they were worried and afraid of what we were getting into. And um, they didn't want to see the program continue. But, but I assume their, their hesitancy was about the public relations problem of, of acknowledging what they were doing. No. Okay. No. Way beyond that. Right. It was Pandora's box. Mm -hmm. They were worried about things that are partially true to be worried about. Mm -hmm. Maybe we should hold off on getting into this for the moment because it could be an entire other conversation. Yeah. The, the point I was really trying to make is that you, uh, you had a, uh, you, you have had working relationships with the, the military in your business. Uh, and in this instance, at, at least to the, degree, to the degree that it worked, it did work. We had uh, on board, uh, one of our staff was uh, one of the key pilots, uh, one of the four pilots that was in the group that saw the, the first one to see the tic-tac, mm -hmm. you know, while it was underwater and then as it came out of the water. Yeah. And uh, so Doug was one of our, I think that was in Doug Kirk. Well, that, sh that should also be another conversation. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. This has been an interesting conversation. It's not a typical topic for new thinking allowed, but I couldn't resist having the discussion with you given the depth of your experience and the fact that it, when we talk later on about such topics as UFOs and the afterlife, people will understand that you're bringing to the table a lot of knowledge about a completely separate topic of space exploration. Actually, I think there are some interesting areas where they may converge. So, for now, we'll close this discussion and I'll, of course, remind our viewers that we will continue our conversations and we'll be getting into other areas that are dear to your heart these days, particularly survival of consciousness after death. So, I want to thank you once again for being with me, Robert. And for those of you watching, or listening, thank you for being with us. You are the reason that we are here. We've just released issue number two of the New Thinking Aloud quarterly magazine. You can download a free copy at the New Thinking Aloud Foundation website, newthinkingaloud.org.